0: hannah this is eggshells and you've tuned into an interview with nishi over the next little while nishi lizzie and i explore disagreement and how to do it better we talk about many things with nishi including identity politics privilege the technological boom and the perils of twitter nishi is super intelligent and interesting and we have so much fun chatting with her This is an interview to listen to if you liked the Identity Politics episode and also want to hear Nushi talk about her work in conspiracy theories. Nushi is now senior digital content manager at Save the Children. She has one mission, turn complex global debates into conversations anyone can participate in. As managing editor of opinions platform, Palia, Nushi investigated why we think what we think using experimental multi-platform content. Prior to that, she spent three years on NBC Universal's prestigious Future Leaders program and two years at Sky writing and producing viral conspiracy theory videos. In her spare time, she also presents Ethnically Speaking, a YouTube show which gives a voice to underrepresented ethnic groups in UK media. Without further ado, here's Nushi in conversation with Eggshell.
1: so much for getting involved in this. I really appreciate it. It was just su- such a joy to hear your wise words on Radio 4. You seem to do an enormous amount of things. Um,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I found a particularly interesting bit, the, the bio that's on on Parlier. It says, you're managing editor at Parlier, former future leader at NBC Universal, traversing everything from film distribution to financial news. You made digital shorts about conspiracy theories at Sky, and you may never know whether Iran really did kill Michael Jackson. I hope someone finds out. (laughs) Um, You've got professional experience at UNESCO TI and an LA startup. And then you've got an MA from St. Andrews and MSC from Oxford. Uh, and you're also trained in wild terrain survival skills and advanced <laughs> Excel, so that's important too.
2: The Excel, the Excel was like slightly shaky, but apart from that, everything's.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I need some dialing up. All right, fair enough. But that—I mean—that's a huge number of things, and I'm not even sure if that covers the breadth of it.
2: So, I mean, yeah, my career has been completely ridiculous. <laughs> <It's>, uh... <laughs> so, I joined Paliya in 2020 in January, before, obviously the pandemic and so for a startup I mean it was I mean it's kind of it's been strange I guess since then because um, because obviously we we started the company and Pali had received funding back in the previous December from private investors plus sort of Bloomberg and Google and a couple of big names on the assumption of course that it was then going to grow and grow and grow and that was the plan and so in the pandemic here I think we were very lucky to grow 30 percent month on month and you know, our users and stuff has grown a thousand percent in that time. But I mean obviously this will you know it began at zero, so you say a thousand percent, but <laughs> it's still that's yeah, still good. Um, but yeah, I don't know, my career has been has been strange. So I went to uni and then I straight out of my masters, I got a job in Alabama and my job was working for T I where I was travelling around the deep south and eating food and writing about it for a book. And then from there I went to UNESCO. And then from UNESCO, I got a job. I I had been doing at the same time as UNESCO. I was writing for free for this magazine. I was their features editor. And the deal was that I would do it around my main job, but I wouldn't be paid. So I had complete editorial freedom. So that was the fun of it. And it helped me build up a portfolio. But then on the back of that portfolio, I got sort of spotted, I guess, by this mad tycoon CEO in LA. And <laughs> moved out there to a brand media company. And That sort of set up a bizarre chain event, so I did that, then I went, moved back to the UK, worked for Sky as a writer and producer on online conspiracy theory videos for a year and a half. And as you can imagine, with all the kind of online space, it gets very formulaic after a while if you're creating viral content. So, you know, all of our videos we're getting, we're producing two videos a week, writing two videos a week, and they're all getting sort of five million views. But to have that sort of standard of view, you have to almost have a formula and so it got incredibly boring. And so I was like, oh, yes. I need to learn something. Or, you know, my IQ is slowly dissipating day by day. So <laughs> <laughs> it gets to the point where I was like, do I even know, like, my four times tables anymore? And so I was like, okay, I need a job where I am forced to learn stuff. And so I got a place on the NBC Universal. So they take on four people worldwide every year and sort of bring them into the London HQ and train them up to become sort of senior management in the company. And so I did that programme. And then towards the end of that program, you know, you're getting offers from different places in the company. And for me, I was like, either I decide I want to be rich and corporate and I take one of these jobs, which will destroy my quality of life. Because, again, they're so mm-hmm. dull corporate life. It doesn't matter if you're in media or finance or whatever. Like, the jobs are pretty much the same. And so I was like, I can't do this. And so I moved to Polya. And that's sort of been the, <laughs> been the trajectory. Wow, yes, very logical
1: trajectory, yes, Go. just, yeah, <laughs> that's, what. wow, that's wonderful, just to have Amazing. so many opportunities, and, and, and to have made like, so many of them, and to have taken them in so many, you've gone in so many different directions, that's, that's a real breadth of, of experience that, yeah, it's so cool.
2: It's sort of like, yeah. it's difficult to explain sometimes, because obviously when you're making any decision mm. in your career, right, you don't do it because you have a certain vision in your mind of weight. Way- well, some people do, and I admire them. Maybe But, yeah, exactly. But, um, but I think, you know, for me, and I'm, I'm sure maybe you guys are the same, where I'm very much always weighing up. You know, I'm not driven by money. I'm not driven by those things. I'm very much driven up by will I be happy or excited doing this job? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. Yes, exactly. Which kind of, I feel, makes each
1: decision kind of strange I'm I'm at it not tangent too much but I'm at a point where I'm just like it would be quite nice if I at least nailed down a set of values by which I could make a decision so that every time something came up I didn't have to be like oh that looks exciting and then like run off in the direction of it and then (laughs) to deal with the consequences it'd be quite nice if I could be like it does it fit in holistically or like in some way with some trajectory that I have in mind
2: don't know no I I, I completely know what you mean often I'm also like I think I was doing this thing yesterday because I do this YouTube show and so we've just been so I've just been made one of the like permanent hosts and so at the moment it's basically I mean most of those views come from myself or members of my family (laughs) 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 they are valuable come on I mean yeah if I did know them like and one of the, so they were sort of you know, making like you know social media content for these guys, and like they send over set of questions of self recording whatever. And one of the things was, what would you have told your sixteen year old self? And I was like, the thing I wish I told my sixteen year old self because I noticed I still do it now, and I wish I'd known earlier. Was life isn't an exam, you know? There isn't a right answer to everything, and that's like in real life you have all these different options, and none of them is the right answer. And if you have trained your mind, there's no like there must be a right answer it's so hard to know which one to take (laughs) or what to do like you know even basic decisions like I find myself like oh I just don't know you know try to think intrinsically about like all these different things but actually it seems to chill just choose one and it'll be fine so I feel the same about career stuff
0: (laughs) yeah I think it it sort of similar to like there is no fix to things and there is no kind of if you do this thing then you will achieve happiness and greatness and because then you're some people might get there and then they're like but why am I not happy
2: all the time or exactly and then it's too late for those people I just think yeah it's so hard just to know I guess that's the thing as well like we assume that we can know (laughs) Um, what the right thing is we'll never know and I think come to terms that uncertainty is just
1: crushing (laughs) And kind of been helped a bit by that pandemic, like the words come to terms with so much uncertainty.
2: Mm. I like. Yeah, very true. Absolutely. Hopefully, this is the most uncertain period we'll ever experience. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> All right, nice one. Well, shall
1: we crack on with some questions? So, Eggshells is a, well, it started out as a sort of a platform, but we've really honed it at the moment into being a podcast, at least to start with, trying to give ourselves some stepping stones. And its whole aim is to help people disagree well. So it started really in the summer of last year. My main trigger was living in Chicago and finding that there was a a wide variety of responses to the Black Lives Matter protests and finding that conversations were often filled with conflict or vitriol, not very nice things. And just thinking about how much I enjoyed communication, how it's a sort of thread throughout all the different work that I do and how I was walking towards many of these conversations and a lot of people around me were walking away from them and I found that an interesting thing and then I spoke to Hannah about it and she was like yeah I'm on board let's talk about this more and uh, we basically went into a deep dive of lots of different I'm gonna say research but you know that was it was a lot of like other podcasts and articles and journals but also different sort of ways that people have talked about conflict and disagreement and we ended up with that we've we've ended up approaching it from quite a kind of a we, we're trying to understand why it's difficult to disagree and then we're trying to give people translate that into practical tools for doing it better so we really want listeners of the podcast to come away with a deeper understanding about why people get into these terrible arguments or why they might themselves feel ashamed because they have things to say or they want to be able to listen better but they for some reason can't and so then they just don't you know we're actually trying to get people into an arena and we're also trying to open up conversations about what's uncomfortable and what's unsafe and what's smart and best for individuals but trying to get everybody talking about things that matter to the best of their capabilities and so yeah translating that as far as possible into practical takeaways it Many sounds questions.
2: really interesting it, it honestly sounds like fascinating because I guess also with parlia, that's one of the reasons like it sprouted you know what I mean that was one of our incentives so yeah I, I completely I completely get where you're you know the type, where you come from awesome well it would
1: just be so I mean identity we have through our conversations uh really figured out it's just so I mean I don't want to like Maybe I shouldn't say anything because I don't want to put ideas in your head. I kind of just want to hear what you have to say. (laughs) Um, But but you've obviously talked, where I heard you speaking, you were talking about identity politics.
2: And I wonder if you could explain what you mean by identity politics. So identity politics is a way of understanding ourselves and understanding others that is based on often superficial factors. So, for example, it could be based on the fact that, you know, you're a woman or you're a millennial if it's generational or you're black or you're white or any of those things, basically identifying markers with which we use as people in a society to understand people, guess where they come from and sort of categorise people in a way that we're naturally programmed to do. And so in terms of identity politics itself, it is the way that this type of, having these perspectives on people has almost been spun on its head. So rather than it being something passive we do without really acknowledging that it's happening or that we're thinking in this way, we have started to leverage it. And so rather than being atomized in our societies, we now have seen the growth of movements that sort of bandwagon together, based on these identifying factors, or one identifying factor, group themselves, create an agenda, and often politicized, and sort of then identify as a group on this one, one single issue, rather than acknowledging the multiplicity of factors or elements that make up a personality or make up society, and sort of simplifying politics in that way and so for example you know in britain we've seen it with ukip or with the brexit party or single issue platforms or parties and the same in the states you know with black lives matter obviously the movement started there but it's based on one thing being black like you know brexit Party is based although they would argue it wasn't i mean it's really based on nationalist identity in the uk and so it's taking one element of a personality or idea and transforming forming that into a wider political movement and then using that movement to try and lobby for things or make change in a society. Yes. Yes, totally. Okay, so so actually it sounds as
1: though it's coming from is it fair to say then that identity politics can be extremely useful as in people acknowledge the superficial groups that society assigns them to and then say okay, fine. Well, then I'm going to lobby on behalf of that particular group by using my identity as a strength and then also that perhaps people are pigeonholed
2: a little bit by those superficial for superficial
1: uh, social tags as it were.
2: Yeah I mean I think identity politics, I say superficial I don't necessarily mean this as negative I think like (laughs) the way you see people so kind of used as a positive tool definitely I think often you know, a lot of people see identity politics as an alternative to traditional political systems. And that's because what we, you know, the status quo, if you have sort of a left-right spectrum, whatever it might be, have failed a number of underrepresented groups, whether that means the poor, which, again, the poor is obviously a much wider category than I'm making out, or black people or brown people or whatever it is. And so because these sort of existing channels don't really work to kind of represent all voices in society, actually these movements, these identity politics movements, have actually been much more successful in lobbying for positive change. So for example, if we take Black Lives Matter as as the example, you know, it's no surprise. We all know that Black people are much more likely to be stopped and searched, be incarcerated, face abuse, be in poverty, um, be killed. And all these terrible things in society unevenly happened to that group and or to, to black people. So although there is obviously you know, cross-cutting identities amongst black people, there is also a fact that black people as a, as a whole are much more prone to these sort of disadvantages. And so Black Lives Matter gives a platform to them and forces us to acknowledge or forces political systems to acknowledge actually disparities in all of these different areas. And so it's definitely been a positive tool for change. It's, you know, with Black Lives Matter, it's ignited a whole global movement that actually makes us think about why we hold the views that we have and actually forces us to acknowledge that the way we interact in society isn't on even keel. You know, so that feeds into conversations about privilege, right? So we talk about one of the sort of difficult things that people people have difficulties talking about privilege, white privilege in particular. And the reason that this is, is because, you know, it's very, people see it as reductive in the sense that they're like, well, not all white people are privileged. You know, like in the UK, for example, the most disadvantaged group in British society are the white working class. They're much less likely to go to uni or have any kind of economic value. And so a lot of people look at this term white privilege and think of this, this fact about society and say like, how can you say white privilege exists? And actually, movements like Black Lives Matter have forced us to actually think, or forced us to look long and hard at at what white privilege means and realise that white privilege isn't about saying all white people have it better than everybody else in life, across every single sector, forever. What it means is, due to due to unearned things, for example, colour, or things you're born into, due to the circumstances of your birth, you have an advantage over other groups. And that's all it is. And so it's Black Lives Matter and other identity political groups, if that's them, are super useful for forcing us to acknowledge the way our society is structured and reflect on how that should change. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely.
1: I mean, that's talking about how, like, how intersectionality fits into wider discussions around identity politics, which was one of the things we wanted to mention because I think that it's. I just read the most wonderful essay that was, I don't know who it was written by, but it was entitled something very normal, like I, uh, I'm a poor white person in America and I still have privilege. And, one, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a wonderful piece by somebody who's saying, the first time someone told me I had white privilege, I was so mad, like so angry. And then they go into all the, you know, things that they grew up with, very, very difficult circumstances, barely any money and talks about how dare someone say that I have privilege, like I basically have nothing. And then they just say quite matter-of-factly and then discovered the term intersectionality and then they just go through all the different ways that they do mm. have privilege and that is that there. Um, but yeah. you know what I'm saying is that she, she goes through all the different ways that she might, with her mm. sexuality for example, she says that she's heterosexual, um, and that she doesn't have any impairments like she has a lot of things going for her and it it felt as though in that essay that she was saying that it was it was just a relief to like understand that people weren't getting at her personally either or denying her experience
2: That
1: mm-hmm. it was more about understanding yeah the intersectionality of privilege and how she has been Given certain advantages that she's been born into. Well there's
2: into. this you know a lot of like social workers and I guess, social theorists as well the way that they say is the best the best way to sort of look at this and approach this and kind of get over the defensiveness that we all feel because we all have some element of privilege and I think first of all that's the most important thing to acknowledge and if someone says you're privileged we are all, we, there is there'll be some way apart from maybe the most disadvantaged yeah. person on earth <laughs> you know because because privilege is relative. <laughs> yeah. And so inevitably, we all have some privileges and some ways we're not. And people get very defensive about, you know, you calling out their privilege because they think it means that you've had an easy life. That is not the case at all. And so the tool that these guys tend to use, which I think is really useful, is saying, in what ways are you disadvantaged? And that's the that's the, that's the the best way to get those kind of conversations. And, you know, like, for example, if it were me, if I wanted to answer that question I say well like, I'm a woman I'm an ethnic minority I grew up in a single parent household but then at the same time this follow-up question would be in what ways do you have privilege and once you've kind of set that as a groundwork i.e dispelling the myth that you've had this super charm life I could also say look I've been extremely well educated I have always had food on the table I, I grew up in London one of the most like metropolitan cities in the world i like, can well travel. like all these different things that actually the point is like Our identities are so complex and I think that's the easiest way to kind of theorise intersectionality is you know if you look at yourself and kind of split it up into those two different you know columns almost and look at how all those different factors make up you and relative to other people are both privileged and not privileged.
1: Definitely definitely and that touches so beautifully on things that we've been talking about with people about hearing people which in disagreements is honestly sometimes very difficult to do someone might make a point and someone else we've spoken to has referenced how important it is even to just reflect that point back to them I hear you what you said is blah 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 it's an acknowledgement of a part of someone's identity or the truth that they're speaking that they want to get across and the way that you've just explained how that happens is is an acknowledgement of someone's truth it's not it's not saying oh no you've not had any difficulties only concentrating on your privilege by getting that Mm. the disadvantages out you know it kind of satisfies people's urge to be like well I've not had it easy you know because no one has had it exactly easy either so so kind of getting that out of the way first I think takes down people's defensiveness and allows people to be more open and receptive which it's great.
2: Yeah. No, I, yeah, I completely sense. agree. So one of the things that I found really interesting at Palier, for example, has been what, we'll, what we used to do is we would take questions. So any question, it could be anything from nature versus nurture to the American election to whatever. It could be any single subject. But the way that those pieces of content used to be structured, which is a really interesting thought experiment for anyone to do, would be all the positions that exist around a question would be represented. Then all the different arguments in that position, and then all the different premises. So, for example, it might be, should the statues be torn down? So, obviously, there's this big debate in the UK about statues of people who perpetrated violence against colonial countries, colonised countries, um, which today is still, in a sense well, that's the debate, I suppose, venerated, or the statues still exist in public spaces, which suggests they're admired, or we should look up to them in society. And so a way of looking at that might be, what was the position on this? We must tear all the statues down right now. Then an argument might be, the statues um, suggest we venerate X individual for his work, killing 10,000 Indians in the 1940s. And then you go back into that argument and you sort of dissect it what is what are the assumptions that this is based on and it's uh, the first assumption might be if you have a statue, it venerates the individual aka any statue is a celebration of a person, therefore having a statue of a murderer as these you know as it might be argued celebrates this person and everything they've done and like it just simplifies everything in that way and so I've started doing that tons if I have a view that is at odds with somebody else's. I'm like, okay, we both have, our views are equally valid because they exist. And and so why do I think what I think? And why do you think what you think? And there's the basic sort of essential assumptions that those things will always be based on. And it's just such an interesting way to look at your own views and try and understand others. And I think it's sort of almost like encouraged disagreement because it's interesting knowing how others think as well. You know? And also when you do that, you can if if there are certain assumptions that something is based on everything is based on a set of values and actually that those set of assumptions is finite there are only so many things so for example if i think that all statues venerate somebody that same assumption will mean i must therefore support x argument on this other topic and so you can extrapolate tons of stuff as well about the way people think and often if you do that they will disagree with this other view so like okay in that case you don't truly think this and you can destroy the argument and win find the contradictions in the other person yeah. and destroy them
1: <laughs> fantastic
0: really really sort of links in so with so many conversations we've had there about like making sure the other person feels heard and trying to understand why they might mm. think the way that they think rather than just telling them that they're wrong because then that immediately creates a barrier whereas if you give them the space to talk about their experiences and why they have those beliefs
2: that actually
0: puts you in a stronger position yeah completely because they they don't feel so defensive no I
2: can I completely agree I was at a socially distanced garden um a week ago and I was meeting my friend's boyfriend for the first time and we had a conversation where he was saying to me, he said, you know, the problem with all this diversity and multiculturalism and Black Lives Matter is the fact that it's taking place in Britain, and Britain is a white country. He's like, you can't deny the fact. And I was like, wow, you know, I so rarely, I don't hear this view outside from, like, you know, on the radio walls or, you know, that kind of thing. And I was like, this absolutely fascinates me. And then we sort of moved on yeah. to Jordan Peterson. And he was saying to Jordan Peterson, obviously a very controversial academic, again, I had always assumed that everyone must have the same view as me of this man, which is that he's very poisonous. You know, he trumpets this very outdated, traditional idea of male and female roles and all this kind of thing. And so I assume that most people in our age group, millennials, would also hold this view. Anyway, he was like, I've got VIP tickets to the Jordan Peterson conference. And I think he's this, you know, arbiter for change. And like, he says all these things. And I'm like, this is interesting because your girlfriend, my friend, you know, she's a successful independent woman. She's nothing like the women that he describes or thinks that should exist. Um, But it was super interesting. And as so to come back, like I was just, you know, listen to him. Exactly. You have to hear these people out. Hear anybody out who doesn't agree with your sort of worldview. And although, you know, at the end, is that a thing where disagreement isn't always about changing someone's mind often it's about informing your own and I left that conversation and I thanked him and I was like you know I will never agree with anything you think I what well, at this moment in my life I own anyway but it's so informative like it's such an exciting way to to sort of learn and so that's the other thing about disagreement you know I think we as a culturally we have this fear of it because we assume it must it must be about sort of hating the other person when actually it's nothing to do with that you know it actually is more exciting it's more of a challenge and often more fun than chatting to your friends who have exactly the same views as you. Totally yeah totally
1: that's exactly that's so that's so wonderful and the fact that you went back and thanked him at the end because you're like my god you've really given me some some honestly Mm. new information you know you didn't know that actually anybody thought this who was in your social circle I had an entirely dissimilar but in some ways exactly the same encounter with with somebody on Twitter I went down a horrible rabbit hole and ended up connecting it ended up com- I shouldn't have done this I commented on some right-wing person's awful comment on Twitter I just shouldn't have done it but I did and then I forgot about it and didn't go back on Twitter for a while and then he got back to me and all these other people had like hopped on and it was a, it, it wasn't like a storm or anything i'm very low low profile but i was quite stressed and I had, we were partway mm. through making eggshells at this point, really in the thick of mm. thinking about conflict and disagreement. And so I decided to start practicing just curiosity with him. I didn't say anything inflammatory. And I hadn't started by saying anything inflammatory either. I didn't throw any insult bombs. I didn't, you know, I literally just sort of asked questions. That's interesting you think that, but i had like a conversation with him and it took five or six tweets back and forth with him throwing insults mm-hmm. at me and me just like taking them and moving on and, and going forward. Before he ended up being like, you seem so cool. Let's DM, I wanna know more. And then we had this massive DM exchange about our views, which was very, and he always started with great to hear from you and like so lovely to wow. see having this chat. And he was just somebody who was throwing out crap online. I actually just wanted a chat and was quite a like reasonable human Mm. being when you just spoke to him and that's what always amazes me and frankly fills me with like some sort of hope as well as curiosity I'm making links that might not be there but how curious is it that you have this this wonderful friend who you associate with presumably on some level who then really likes this guy and like how interesting and what merits must he have in order because you know you trust your friend right and so again I look online and I think I'm drawing a parallel where there isn't one really but I look online and I think like all these people why are they so filled with hate why is everything so awful and why are their lives so terrible they're not they're still Mm. people they're real human beings like I just want to chat you know it doesn't have to It doesn't have to be the way that we think it is, and often it isn't the way that we think it is. And it's so refreshing.
2: There's this idea of belief polarisation, which is, over the past 30 years, there's a tonne of research by Pew and all these guys, which basically shows that the way we see the other side has now radically transformed. And so previously, the other side in any democratic system, so the other political side, would be somebody you cooperated with, even if you don't agree with them, to try and bring about positive change. And people blame three different factors for changing this. So people say that number one is tech. So you have the tech revolution and the fact that we are now manipulated so much what we see into our echo chambers, more than we can even imagine, means that we see so such one sided information, such one sided news. We often like we can't even imagine that the other side, we demonize the other side without knowing why we do. So that's number one. Second of all, people say that globalization and coming back to stuff about identity politics and um, the fact that we can now communicate with people across borders at any time, whenever, has meant that people do find connections with others that share their views. And that's hardens, that shores it up as well. And the third is the media, because we've seen a huge polarization in mass media since the 1990s, since we've had a massive diversity of channels rather than sort of four the way that those agendas on those channels work is much, much stronger, which have contributed to the rise of Breitbart and so on and so on and so on. And so these three factors have led to, scientifically, a complete divergence in the way, A, that we hold our own views and see ourselves, but also as a sort of a byproduct of that, how we therefore see those that don't agree. And so like before the US election this year, 40%, I think, yeah, 40% of both sides the Democrats and Republicans believed that violence was justified against the other side if they won you know like that is like symptomatic of something mm. insane because that would not have been the case 10 20 years ago and so we now yeah. you know the way we demonize the other side is now so extreme that we're surprised for example yeah. when we meet reasonable people who just have a different view to us which is insane yeah it's totally nuts and
1: when you break it down like that you can see kind of how it's happening It still means we have to deal with the fact that it's just quite stressful. So we may have already covered some of this, but to go back to identity politics and tell me if we've already uh, covered this enough. But we we wanted to know about how identity politics shapes the way that people engage in civil society and political Mm -hmm. systems. So we've talked obviously about Black Lives Matter as a good as a great example of furthering a particular section of society's justified needs can we talk more about in civil society and political systems how identity politics
2: is making so, an impact it's kind of interesting because again i think it feeds into this whole technological boom and so the fact that now you know mm. we can choose what we can see we can choose how we think we everything is much more bespoke than it once was and that's the same for politics and so identity politics in this sense means that things have become a lot more generalist they have become about who we are and what we want as a group which you know is slightly dangerous because those groups themselves are fractured they're not you know if we believe in intersectionality and all these things it's almost the odds that we then think that one particular group based in its race must all want the same thing right and then you ask okay well what does i mean the perfect example would be blm which then became defund the police now a lot of people support BLM don't believe in defunding the police Mm. but even if they do the question is what does that mean and so because these groups aren't necessarily organised by a political value system or any value system, all they're organised by is something that they represent without even meaning to represent often, just because they've been born into that, it sort of makes things quite fuzzy. And you can see that almost on the flip side in the UK, for example. So I am half Asian. A lot of Asians will speak about Preeti Patel as though she represents, she's a spokeswoman for all Asians in the UK. And they will say things like, I can't believe she, you know, how can she be Asian? This is disgusting what she's saying. Like she's trying to turn us all away. And things like this, and you're like, well, I'm sure all white people don't look at, didn't look at Theresa May or don't look at Boris Johnson and think, God, this man is giving the race a bad name, ethnicity is a bad name. So because we've now come to this point where we do see ourselves by our ethnicities, for example, actually simplifies things in a way, simplifies many complex things, which actually detracts from conversations that maybe should be had. So I think that's definitely one thing. Also engagement. So I think identity politics has also meant that society at large has become a lot more political. And you see that especially in Gen Z, people who grew up with the internet. I think you see you know, younger generations are much more vocal in their political views. You see, I mean, the obvious thing would be wokeness, right? And the fact that wokeness, which (laughs) is in theory a political movement, is actually a social movement, which is defined by a generation, by generational boundaries. And it's part of being that age, you know, you have all these views, like wokeness, which is slightly, all it means is you're awakened to different inequalities in the society, you understand that things aren't as simple as they seem, and yet it's both great for conversation, it's great for lobbying all these different things, for example, on trans rights. Wokeness trans rights, hugely intertwined, and Twitter, you know, lends itself to an inverted commas cancel culture if people don't agree with those things. And so cancel culture Mm -hmm. as a thing has come from wokeness, which has come from the politicisation of society, right? But at the same time, that term is also... And thanks to these different chains of events, something people fear, because, you know, if you don't agree or don't conform to everything that this very vague, ambiguous band stands for, if you're in that generation or any generation, you suddenly become public enemy number one. And that is because everyone is political, but no one knows what it means. All they know is they identify with this one term. And that term is an identity that we all have to subscribe to on every single level. So that's the sort of contradictions I think of the whole thing.
1: Totally. That is so well expressed that we that we all well that we might want to be woke but that we don't really know what that means and that we don't really know how to practice it. We're not really necessarily taking actions or engaging with the deeper ramifications of associating with that term. We just know that we should mm. be woke and we don't yes. want to be cancelled.
2: <laughs> exactly. You know? yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like I've deleted tweets. I mean, as I say, look, I don't tweet anything inflammatory, but you know, and I was like, what if this is misread? No. You know, it's far too risky. With these sort of much more loosely defined groups, which aren't groups at all, but individuals who describe themselves in a certain way and how they, whatever, you know, I might call myself, I don't know, short and somebody else might also call themselves short, but when I say short, I mean something very different to what Roxy would say, for example. It's because it is so nebulous, these terms. Actually, the only thing you can do is act in really extreme ways because that's all all you have in common, really, and it's it's the defence mechanism or that tribal thing of protecting yourselves. That sense of belonging, isn't it, to attach yourself to these terms, and
1: especially as we're all so disparate and... The internet has somehow divided us and brought us closer together it feels like being able to be part of something even if you don't fully understand or subscribe exactly to what it is you're being part of
2: yeah yeah, i think that's also what causes these kind of dangerous movements like incels you know because so many of those people just exist on the internet and become really extreme right-wing which is fine but you know the whole thing is involuntary celibate men and they are they feel lost and they join this group which they probably have no true desire to be part of but then they sort of get sucked up into it and actually you know it fashionizes people in a way that it shouldn't you know that sort of destroys lives of the people within the group as well as those outside of it you know we don't often talk about that but it's mm-hmm. it's unhealthy for everyone in that sense this giving into tribalism actually not really questioning why you're doing it definitely I,
1: I mean this may or may not be relevant but you've spent some time looking into conspiracies and stuff. I mean that must be a world not dissimilar having people jump on a on a bandwagon of something and and potentially mm. impact their lives quite a lot by like
2: yeah striving so to something definitely I mean the awesome. thing was it, it was a conspiracy world so, I was working on conspiracy theories for a year and a half. And I mean, you know, I was coming up from a creative perspective, but a commercial perspective. And it is this really sad thing, although great at the time, which is conspiracies were almost the most lucrative or easy market because the people who have been sucked into that really, really believe everything they see. And I think, you know, the thing I noticed now is, you know, COVID has been almost. A, a catalyst for a lot of that I and mean, when we talk about political polarization hmm. for example and you think about the proliferation of conspiracy theories around covid so as Parlia, our most successful ever piece of content was what are the conspiracy theories around coronavirus it was insanely insanely popular in fact for over a year the most popular page on our site was and i mean thousands and thousands of hits a day around the world was on Nostradamus's predictions on coronavirus. The second most popular was Baba Vanga, the Bulgarian blind mystics that we all know and love. Her predictions on coronavirus, followed yes. by does cocaine kill coronavirus? And you know, every single thing. Bearing in mind, the site has thousands of pages, which are much richer and have you know real evidence and facts and research. This was, I mean, this was insane, like the appetite for conspiracies and even the way people engage with them, you know, those pages get much more engagement, much more sharing, huge WhatsApp sharing between groups and things. Like, but, I mean, it was a proliferation in a sense of fake news, although we obviously debunked everything and sent them to the World Health Organization as, I guess, as a responsible organization. But the fact that appetite exists and also you see, you see the appetite for conspiracy theories in the extreme right and the extreme left right right <laughs> absolutely i mean correct right. right yeah, correct. And, uh, yeah. but you, you know you probably it comes back <laughs> to that thing of belief polarization where people now are so desperate to reject evidence for example on vaccines people who before were very logical and um you know reasonable now fall into these traps of believing the government the world government is trying to trick us and vaccines are a way of controlling the population. All these things, which if you'd asked them, as I say, like 10 years ago, would have, they would have thought these people showing these views are absolutely mad. But conspiracism has, you know, is driven by fear, is driven by uncertainty, and also is driven by, as, as are having extreme views sometimes, not always. And so those things go hand in hand. And so those conversations, when we talk about disagreement, are a lot more difficult. Because once somebody, you know, I've tried reasoning with people on Instagram or Twitter that I know, including family members who've fallen into that trap and have started to believe a lot of, a lot of this sort of mad, like, hokum stuff. And once people are past the point of logic, there is, you know, you can't, you can't do anything at that point. So definitely avoid, <laughs> you know, if you see the warning signs, that's the, that's the point of no return, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's sad but true. I mean, just offering mm. some some compassion and 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 frankly steering clear of those topics and unless you're unless they bring them up, maybe. Cause yeah, that's
2: tough. You're right. Mm.
1: Can we cycle all the way back, jumping around a little bit? So you mentioned before white privilege as a term that gets a lot of people's backs up. So what why do you think people disagree? over the term white privilege or just mm. generally the idea of privilege. We've talked about this um, a little bit, but it just seems um, so
2: inflammatory. So sometimes. partially, I think people disagree over white privilege because, as I say, it's an affront to their, to something they don't have control over. That's one thing is why should they be insulted or in a way, you know, they fear having to suffer as a result of something they haven't done you know, in the same way that we say racism, someone who's born shouldn't be disadvantaged because of the colour of their skin, and we usually apply that to non-white communities. I think a lot of white people feel the same way about, you know, the same conversation. Why should they be seen as privileged because they were were born as a white person? And so it's actually quite, you know, in that way it can be seen as quite offensive. And... As I said, I also think it's that thing of acknowledging that white privilege doesn't mean that you are not disadvantaged in other ways. You know, like you were were saying about this article you read, there are a lot of cross-cutting factors that may may be more more important or less important depending on your life. You know, that's the point of sort of acknowledging everyone's circumstances or your circumstances and seeing it in that way. But I think also there's this, you know, there's a concept of white fragility, which I think often feeds into these conversations which is obviously the theory that if you say if you suggest to somebody a white person that their view is in any way racist or racialized or worldview that you know doesn't see everyone as equals people sort of shut you down or won't acknowledge it or shy away or get offended or upset which I mean we see a lot and not just in racism you see that a lot when people are confronted with something they don't like about themselves and I think white privilege is very divisive more than any other because people don't have control over it. And there are these facts, like I was saying earlier, about you know the white working class being much more disadvantaged even than any other racial group. So it's not as simple as it first seems. And I think that is often why people have an issue with it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah totally. And white, you're right to bring up white fragility as well because it's so... I've seen it unpacked quite usefully on different platforms, thinking about, frankly, not, not taking it so personally when someone levels a societal thing at you. Um, yeah, I don't really know how to unpack that more, but I've just seen it. I just just the other day, and this isn't necessarily... Well, no, it is White Fragility. There was this lovely cartoon series on Instagram about somebody saying, well, I'm doing my anti-racism reading how does that mean I'm not an anti-racist? You know, I'm reading about it. And then the cartoon series went on to be like, okay, but what if you were reading about mountain climbing? Does that mean you're a mountain climber? You know, it's just nice to think about it in the different contexts because it can, as you say, there are these, all these terms that are just so, yeah. they trigger such defensiveness.
2: No, completely. So when I was a kid, I used to write to this pen, I had a pen pal who was a black man on death row and he was a rapist and murderer and he was he'd been in prison you know he was actually executed a couple of years ago but he the only reason he was in there and I think this was kind of illuminating for me anyway was that he was black so the DNA from these crime scenes so the culprit the perpetrator the murderer had um, been in this small town outside Columbus Georgia and was apparently had been spotted by one survivor was a black man had broken into um a number of houses of elderly women and uh, raped them and then strangled them with a, a pair of tights and anyway this guy Carlton was found even though he wasn't um, at any of the scenes of any of these crimes and wasn't the person who was you know resembled the one survivor said it wasn't him or whatever it was um, but his DNA evidence didn't match any of the bodies Um, there was a bite that the murderer had taken out of one of the bodies and a cast had been made of his teeth and didn't match his jaw um, and so on and so on and so on. And eventually a DNA match was found. So this is going back a few years when a um, a high school student in the States, he was 18, he decided to um, do a shoot-up, like a Columbine-style massacre at his school. And he was intercepted, thankfully, just before he sort of got there and obviously taken into custody. And when he was in custody, they were like, you know, what is going on here? So they took the gun and they sort of DNA swapped the gun because he wouldn't say where he got it from. And um, the interesting thing was they had one match in their system with the DNA on this gun and a match the killer. But the killings had happened sort of 40, 35 years previously. And so this dude was 18. So like, what is going on? um and so then he's like it's my father's gun so they're like okay it's your father's gun so they're like okay we found the guy so take him in take his dna doesn't match so they're like what is going on here so then they're like what was he wearing and so they get his jacket and they swab it inside of the pocket in which he was holding the gun and that's 100% match this pocket is soaked in the dna from the scene and then they're like where did you get this jacket from And he got it from an army and navy surplus store where, you know, everything had been anonymized anonymized and sent round. But the point being, they'd found this DNA match, which was completely different to Carlton Gary, the students on death row, and, you know, and so on and so on and so on. And so the appeal went on and on and on. And in the end, so basically the original trial, sort of to break back, so the original trial had been in this very sort of old school, racist, traditional part of Georgia where everyone belonged to this, you know, white public private members club, country club and the judge was the grandson of the guy who had done the final legal lynching in the state of georgia and so there's this long history of sort of racism and blaming sort of non-white black communities and so on and so on and even though this man had not even been in the state during one at the time of one of the murders um he was still convicted despite you know these irregularities and absence of evidence and so, you know, when we talk about white privilege also, I think it's very, I had a couple of points on that. I guess one thing is, you know, this case that I'm discussing is, you know, it's not super common, but it's also not atypical, you know, like we see all the time people who are exonerated or not exonerated, with really scant evidence, which happens, essentially, you know, it does happen much more to black communities more than any other, but it, you know, there is a difference between white privilege, for example, to come back to that, between the UK and the USA, because like there's such different, there's such different worlds. And I mean, also, I'm saying this in London, which is again a different world, but the way that we understand racism here is so different to how it's viscerally in, in the States. You know, like I was, when I was living in Alabama, I would go on like, the first thing my boss said to me when I arrived there was, whatever you do, don't speak to black people. And I was like, what? But then obviously you're there and you kind of see that like, it's still so segregated in Birmingham, Alabama. and And so when we have these conversations also, it's really interesting to, and people have issues with it. I also wonder if it's because contextually, maybe that's a good thing, because if you can't see it in your own communities, it means actually, I mean, obviously all things being relative, but there has to be some level of quality or something where actually it's the unseen things, which are, of course, just as insidious, but actually potentially, you know, less extreme as they are in other parts of the world, for example, the States. Yeah, absolutely. Comparing and contrasting
1: different sort of levels mm. of, of racism uh, or any socialist is very, it's very difficult to do, for sure. But I, I similarly had, you know, going to, going to America well, I hadn't really been called white very much in, in the UK. And suddenly that was a very specific part of my identity that I was called. And similarly, I arrived in Chicago and one of my first pieces of instruction was don't go, don't go beyond X point on the red line because you just, you do not want to, you will not be safe you should not you know and I've never been to- ever been told in London don't go to this area of London I was slightly affronted I was like I don't know
2: yeah, I yeah.
1: which is also my white privilege talking you know so it's just it but so it's diff- it's difficult to compare and contrast I completely agree they are they are different mm. worlds and it's much more on display in America and so maybe you get a bit more comfortable with your not comfortable but like I was made aware of my whiteness pretty quickly. And it was something that I was like, right, I'm coming to terms with this rather than like a nasty surprise. Christ. So we also wanted to talk about some assumptions that are often made about groups or individuals based on their identities. And we've touched a little bit, um, well, quite a lot actually, you've mentioned about how it can be quite useful for groups of people to band together in, in an identity sense. And then of course, it's obviously very reductive to say, Oh, you, you everybody in this certain group is like this, or to have one person from a group speaking for several others so do you have any comments or examples or things to say about when groups reject the truths or values that they are expected to yes. own
2: maybe by nature so, of their identity I think there are a couple like, of examples that come to mind so one of them would be i mean I spoken so much about race so i will <laughs> um which is fat people and so i think you know historically up until maybe two or three years ago if you were a fat woman you were meant to be invisible you were meant to be ashamed of how you looked you were meant to hide yourself in baggy clothes or whatever whatever and that was you know that the fact that also that's the other thing of where does this idea that we have what other people come from and that idea obviously came from the fact that historically and even now of course women are commoditized our bodies are commoditized we are a product we are not a we're not human beings in the same way that men are and obviously this feeds into gender inequalities and all these different things so as a fat woman in society people were always sidelined you know if you looked at up until again a few years ago the daily mail inverted commas sidebar of shame all it did was pick apart and ridicule women of whatever size they were you know you could be a size six you'd still be called obese or fat or chunky or whatever it was and we had this whole vocabulary of words um, and we were all completely happy to use to sort of to insult this group and we were all terrified of ever falling into it you know and because partly to do with media propagation but also just you know those things feed into the way we see those groups and I think We've seen with body positivity and the rise of people like Billie Eilish, for example, you know, it's not, she's obviously not, you know, overweight, but the point being is this total switching of the way a woman's body is seen or rather unseen. Um, And rather than the value being on, you know, how toned you are or how much you weigh, what I really admire about her is she wears super baggy clothes and is trying to switch the narrative in that sense. And you see tons of larger women who now are proud of who they are or you know, presenting this idea of owning your body. Your body is a is something that's healthy. It serves you. It operates. You couldn't live without it. It's not about your size. And you know that obviously has been critiqued a lot, right? So you have a lot of people who say this view of this representation of obese women is uh, promotes really unhealthy ideals, expectations. It's a window dressing. But I think for a lot of people, it's been extremely empowering. And so, you know, fat people who were supposed to be silenced and hide away actually now, you know, influences everywhere to get out there in red commas fupa and have you sort of parade obesity around. And yeah, so but at the same time, though, I'm saying this and I'm saying it as though this is kind of the celebratory end goal, which means that equality has been achieved. And obviously that's not the case, right? So you have a huge obesity crisis. You have rising eating disorders all those things exist in tandem and so I think it's important when we say about groups that don't in that sense fulfill our expectations that we also understand that they provide a new channel for expression they don't solve a problem and so that's one thing another group I was thinking about you know so when I was studying my specialism was looking at women's rights in India and sort of creating new ways of looking at what how where we understand women impact their actual quality of life. And so one thing that I found was that if you look at Kerala in India, so this state in India is often used or heralded as a sort of normative model of development for women. And that's because it's transformed across the last 60 years in the sense that they have higher levels of literacy, higher levels of education, they have much higher participation in the labour force, and in those senses, they must be empowered. And so this model of development, specifically gendered female development, has now been replicated in tons of countries around the world as a way to lift women out of, to give women opportunities. But if you look at the actual real, if you use other stats to sort of understand how that has impacted the way they see themselves, you see huge skyrocketing suicide rates amongst these women. You see masses of domestic violence amongst these women as sort of the men in their societies their positions become more unstable and that's the backlash and so on and so on and so on and so those two examples in the second one, I guess that thing would be when women we assume must be empowered and educated and so on and so on and so on actually from exactly the same models that are trying to lift them up do the opposite and the interesting thing which I guess between those two examples yeah. is one is completely agency driven so body positivity is a choice it's a choice that people have made to represent themselves in a way that is dissonant with the sort of norms of, of the way we interact and the other isn't and so I think both of those things do exist you know like some parts of your identity you're power over some you don't and yet it doesn't matter whether you've chosen to represent yourself in the way or haven't we still will use those markers to identify you yeah absolutely
1: it's mm. so complex isn't it it's
2: <laughs> just <laughs> But it's one I'm really glad you brought up both
1: of those points because in the one sense, the women in Kerala, I think that's something that a lot of a lot of Western women identify with as well, the idea that they have achieved in some way or they have power in some way. And obviously recent conversations have exposed how vulnerable we feel directly post-Sarah Everard and how there's still so much progress to be made and how people hold things up and say but you have but you have but you have and actually it's not necessarily reflective of of one's experience and then yeah it's just wonderful that you've brought up that body positivity set because it's just so you're right it's it's so complex and it's such a such a celebratory wonderful thing to, to have a channel for expression but it's also not a like oh tick okay we look at all those kinds of people differently, or oh, that's just solved now. That's no longer something that we, as a society, really need to look at the way that we speak about and represent people who are overweight. Like it's just such. In both cases, there's more work to be done, and it's so interesting how progress is progress, and also we have to take into account its negative impacts. It's not just yeah. simple. I was
0: sort of hesitant to even bring up Sarah Everard stuff, but well. It's been mentioned, so we'll talk about it a little bit. But interesting to watch how it's sort of, there's so many layers to it. Like, you know, the the main thing is this horrific thing happened. And I I think one thing we all do really badly in the UK is we don't grieve very well. So there's that side of it. And then it very quickly became politicised. So this horrible thing happened. And then very quickly it became about the police, and violence against women and then also I don't think it could be ignored that she was you know a very pretty young white woman who you know I immediately identified with but what about all the young black women who are not splashed all over the newspaper and stuff like that and also then the thankfully I didn't get this reaction from any of my male friends but like the not all men and that. Men and me that I guess this ties into the privilege thing of like instead of listening, some people went, Well, I'm not a murderer, I wouldn't do that to a woman. Like it's not all of us. And they missed the point of of what we were trying to say. But it's sort of I guess the point I'm trying to make is it's it's so layered with this awful thing that happened and nuanced that there's what, five conversations that you can have off. Yeah. <laughs> off of that and it's it's mm-hmm. just not simple or straightforward
2: like i do no. i remember like one of my friends no. sent me this screenshot no. on instagram and we completely disagreed on this so she is she is a blonde white woman and she was saying oh don't you agree so much with what this person has said and what the person had said it was a trans woman who was black And she was saying, you know, it makes me sick to see all these white people coming out with their stories of being sexually harassed or attacked. Poor you. But what about it's time we put the spotlight on us? Because, you know, as a black trans person, she was, you know, in theory, like statistically much more likely to be attacked. And I was like, but you can't, my issue with all this stuff is that and I guess, you know, as you are saying, all these different lenses that people apply is you co-opt a really terrible thing that's happened. And rather than using it to uplift everybody, you know, what you do by sort of ridiculing other people's experiences and the fact that they feel brave enough to speak out is creating a hierarchy of, of misfortune. You know, if I get attacked or if a less able-bodied person who's trans and so on and so on is attacked, like we're both attacked, it's just as bad. You know, and so I think also with those, with Sarah Everard in particular, there was this, what, what should have been a national conversation actually about purely the public safety of women in public spaces or safety of anyone in public spaces, in fact, then got sort of hijacked by lots of different interest groups, identity groups, and became actually a means to sort of say, okay, this has happened to me or this is happening to us. And like, well, I don't disagree with that. It was, in my view, it was like wrongly timed. And actually, you need to have the initial conversation before you can start bringing all this other stuff, or nothing ever gets resolved. Because, like, people were talking about uh, blessing Olashogo, right? The black woman who went for a walk when she was doing an internship, I think, in Brighton or one of the Sussex towns and was found dead on the beach. On the yeah. Beach. Um, with like her shoes missing and so on. And the fact that this was like an open and shut case and saying these are two very similar examples um, of something happening but because this woman was black and because she was white and again i think it just simplifies it so much i mean this is my view now but it's more you know sarah everard was a national story because she was spotted on Clapham common was on the phone and then disappeared off the face of the earth from central london you know blessing i mean this is a terrible terrible story and also i don't mean to detract from that but it's a completely different substances there was no manhunt there was none of those things and actually that is why. But again, obviously, the race, you know, race is a huge factor. Like, black men are three times more likely to be killed or attacked than any other group or, you know, I guess they could be white men. And so there are all these intersecting things as well. But I think often the fact that we're all so keen to, and rightly so, we should all want to fight our corner and fight the corner for those who we rep not represent, but who are similar to us and who we identify with. But, you know, it's often done in a really unproductive way. And I yes. think this was, the, you know, Sarah Everard was the perfect example of that.
0: I completely agree. I think yeah, it would timing was pretty poor because yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of the stuff we all do agree with, but don't do it now. Come on, (laughs) Um, and it sometimes can become a bit of a competition of who's had more pain, who's experienced more horrific things, who's got the most trauma. Yes,
2: honestly, this is like this is so true. You know, and I find that in conversations often a lot. You know, when. This is the thing exactly also when you're talking about conversations about privilege. It becomes, as you say, that like, people become competitive about how hard their lives are. And nine times out of ten, especially the people I meet most likely to meet, especially over lockdown, we're not meeting new people, are quite similar to me. Like our lives, of course, are ups and downs. But, you know, it's not like living in a, a Mumbai slum. You know what I mean? Like selling your children for bread. Like it's not really <laughs> that material different different. <laughs> our lives are pretty similar. And us saying, "Well, this happened to me. This happened to me." It's a bit like, "To what end? Like, what are you trying to get out of this conversation? Like, are you trying to say that like I'm entitled? Are you trying, or you're yeah. entitled, or whatever? Or what am I saying you? You know, I don't know. But I think we have also created this culture where we feel we need to justify yeah. why we think something, why we feel something, or justify why our views are valid. You know, it's like, well, if I haven't suffered, then there's no reason to listen to me. Mm-hmm. So we almost see our own lives or see you know through that lens in try and make you know that's the way to be heard that's an excellent point yeah no absolutely
1: the the idea that that trauma is in some way valuable and it is like a way that you can get somebody to pay attention to you I mean it's it's quite amazing how we've made that maybe it comes from a greater general focus in society on like emotion and emotional experience Mm. and stuff that really needs to be paid attention to you yeah. know people's genuine trauma does need to be paid attention to it deserves that attention but of course it's not as simple as that so we had one more thing that we wanted to talk about so here we have you said oh, you said no she on, on on radio for you said every side of the political spectrum is engaged in debate about different kinds of identity so how do you think this debate is going
2: and like, um, what are its implications? So I think the debate is going furiously in the sense that it's very impassioned. You know, people, for example, I mean, the coup in the capital is the perfect example of this, right? You have white nationalists dressed as bear hunters um, st- <laughs> storming their government. You know, like every single side <laughs> is wild. Every single side is behaving in a way that in any other time would be considered you know it just wouldn't be unfathomable even now it's unfathomable we've sort of normalized it because we're in a pandemic but it's you know the stakes getting higher so it's a debate you know and as I say it's this thing of belief polarization which is so different to political polarization you know political polarization is an issues-led thing and on issues groups are also more polarized than ever before on things like immigration but you know have complete different views but actually there's a lot more that is now sort of broadly consensus. So for example, LGBT rights or abortion, or things that perhaps before weren't all kind of universally agreed on as, as right or wrong. But this belief polarization means that means that the debate, I think, well, I don't think there is a debate. I think there are multiple debates, first of all. You know, what like what is the debate we're talking about? Is the debate should we should we have affiliations based on really nebulous identities? I mean, that kind of debate is. You know, it's spiralling. And I think actually what we're seeing now is it's sort of coming to a to a stop in the sense that it's no longer sort of picking up pace as it once was. So, for example, last summer or last year, it was at an all-time high. People were taking to the streets, burning things. Towards the end of the year, as they say, storming the government, whatever your identity was, you felt that you weren't being listened to and people feel voiceless and that's why these groups argue for what they think. And I think now that a lot of these conversations are in the mainstream, so even people who before would reject the idea of privilege are now having to acknowledge it, they're now having to discuss it and the fact that people are even having those conversations lends itself to um, a more kind of democratic way of democratic forms of communication and those groups no longer feeling that they aren't listened to. And so how does the debate end? Does it end in practical action? Um, I think up to now people haven't really needed to. I think I think the priority is changing. So I think last year and sort of the years prior, when the identity politics became a huge thing, say from Brexit to BLM to to the end of Trump's reign, I think that it was all about making yourself known, making yourself heard. And now I think people have realized that the world is listening they may just not agree and so what we're seeing now is people actually having to formulate agendas based on their their passions and their feelings you see much more kind of cross-cutting alliances that are being made and that is all over the world you know you see it even electorally so Israel just had an election they are one of the most you know unsurprisingly the identity politics in Israel is pretty bad Uh, (laughs) it's pretty pretty extreme You know, and they're a case in point, because you know they also sort yeah. of lens into the rest of the world. Because you know this conversation, like what I've said, has been very Western centric. But you know the world is obviously much larger than that. And so Israel's recent election, Netanyahu, who has obviously had the reign for so long, didn't win a majority, and is now you know in the government. They're having to make alliances with Arab groups. That their main agenda is you know creating more democracy in the West Bank and in Gaza, and all these different types of things. And so cooperation is becoming. I think people now realise you have to cooperate in order to get whatever it is that you want, you know, which previously wasn't the case because no group had a voice, no group had formulated a coherent movement. And now these movements exist. It's inevitable. If to survive, you have to listen. And any political party, if we are talking about politics, what is their main aim to survive and thrive? So you now, I think, yeah, we're at that point where agendas are switching to actually integrate some of those views and make them into a more coherent, goal-driven um, Different ideas and uh, plan. (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) That sounds very
1: hopeful in some ways. It sounds, I mean, I think I agree with the picture that you're painting. And I also see Mm. a sort of, I know everyone always says history repeats itself, but I can see that people emerge and say, Oh, my, my voice and my particular things aren't being heard and expressed. So I'm joining a movement and I'm expressing my voice. And then everybody's doing that. And then we all reach ahead and then we all realise that to get anything done, we have to cooperate with each other. And so we cooperate with each other and gradually we become merged into <laughs> this one voice. Yeah. And then people start saying, my God, my particular voice isn't being represented. And then they start talking get... again. So that's fine if that's the way that we have to exist as humans. But it would be, I mean, considering that I feel this podcast is in service <laughs> of democracy and cooperation, I'm quite pleased that your theory is that we're coming to mm. that point that that
0: yeah it heartens me too and I
2: how do you you think
0: think? we continue in that way I was I mean I don't know if this is along the same sort of subject but it's making me think about like how we the people put certain people in power so people like Trump he didn't get there on his own we obviously we didn't put him there but like you know (laughs) the people put people there And then we hopefully learn lessons from it. So I I guess what I'm in a hopeful sense of like, let's
2: put some different people there now.
0: (laughs) Let's learn from the people that we did give power to. Do you
2: think there's also this thing though, which is like, so for example, say five, six years ago, there was this huge fit. And even now you have obviously like Orban and Hungary or, you know, these leaders who really are, capitalizing on nationalism and using that to bring in really severe right-wing policies but this huge wave that previously with trump or whatever as you say he didn't get in there by himself but this populist fear, or obviously not everyone has you know these leaders got in but that many felt that populism was sweeping europe and also mm. sweeping the americans and maybe i'm wrong because obviously we do have these populist leaders like you know Bolsonaro and so on and so on around the world but it seems I think populism has failed a lot of people you know and so those groups still don't have a leader and i guess that's the the disenfranchised still don't have somebody who speaks for them and you yeah. know that's what they wanted and actually you know we see when we think of trump for example we see extreme images on you know rallies and whatever it might be but you see that for anyone who's a political leader anywhere in the world mm-hmm. it's just we have been like taught to feel fear when we, feel, when we see those things but i no longer i don't know like i don't feel that fear anymore because In the UK, for example, there has been such a backlash, and you know Biden did get in and has vowed to listen to those communities, and so I have sort, you know, Mm -hmm. you see that sort of dial turning slightly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, unfortunately,
1: really, because you kind of wish it wasn't the case, but America is is such a temperature check. I think for the Western world, or at least for my understanding of the Western world in, in that sense, and Biden getting in was just the most enormous relief, and I think that if if trump had got back in it would i, I would still have a level of, of fear that i that i don't really have anymore but it's interesting what you say about the you know taking trump as the example that i really know best to to say anything about the wide variety of different groups that he was able different arguably disenfranchised groups in society that he was able to attract support from based not so much on his values but just on his outspokenness perhaps or the things that people decided that he that he stood for or ways that he you know I'm thinking like the anti-abortion groups you know I listened to a fascinating interview of one of the leading the chairs or CEO of one of the leading anti-abortion groups in America and that the interviewer was so good that he basically pinned her down to saying no he obviously doesn't hugely care about our issue but he is our best bet for getting legislation yeah. through and that is the goal so vote Trump like she didn't say it in those words but it was really like we're just throwing our eggs in his basket because he's our best bet and we've got our own agenda. And I'm taking on a little bit what you said, but just about disenfranchised groups. I think it's when, especially if you're disenfranchised uh, as a group, it's such, it's such a wonderful thing. And I'll speak to my experience as a woman, I suppose. When I see someone mm-hmm. up there <laughs> saying something that sounds like me or that I get or is for me, I'm like, yes, you know? gets me going and i can see how if trump or any populist that is able to harness that is very powerful and then to go back to what you were actually just saying yeah i I hope that biden being in power and Mm. everybody here everybody gross generalization many people here being really pissed off at the the conservative government at the moment hopefully that signals less (laughs) fear for us personally (laughs) in the future this has been an absolute joy nishi is there anything else that you um, wanted to say at all about anything or any questions um, that you
2: have for hannah and i i still just think of something that i thought was quite interesting oh yeah this is just like a general general point which i thought was really cool so when i was at Parlia, one of the like in the office this guy came in to see us and what's his name it was just before lockdowns. So we were based in somerset house before this whole before the pandemic and James Mumford. And so James Mumford is a brother of the Mumfords and he does work polarization, but yes. sort of the kind of contradictions between the way that groups feel in terms of their kind of platforms. And, you know, like if you're a Republican, you're meant to think this, but actually this is to this other Republican view. And one of the things he was saying, which I mean, maybe it's super obvious, but I'd never thought it before, was about abortion and about the right to life. And so it was this thing where, if how can you believe in the death penalty and abortion? And so anyway, that completely blew my mind at the time. I was like, wow, that's what a fascinating like, thought experiment. I guess that's the other thing, you know, talking about like disagreement and kind of politics and identity politics, which is, you know, often people are so committed to being in tribalism and being part of a group that actually it's really less to do with, you know, what I was saying earlier about the premises and the basic, fundamentals that your ideas are based on and much more to do with how much you want to be part of that part of that tribe which is super interesting